Everyone, thanks for listening. Um, today I'm talking with Jay Shapiro, who's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, most recently, he worked on the movie Islam and the Future of Tolerance, based on the book by Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz. He's done a few others, uh, one about a baseball team in Uganda, and one about um, international law, uh, I believe that one's called We Rise. Hey Jay, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, yeah like, first of all, I just want to say like, I... You know, I don't know your stuff all that well. Uh, we met late last year, and then you know, seemed like a really interesting person. You had a different way of looking at things that kind of made me change, or made me rethink how I thought about certain things. So thanks for that. And I mean, okay, I'd like to talk about the the new movie you've done, Islam: The Future of Tolerance. But I'd also like to talk about some of the other stuff you've done, where you've you know your experiences uh, more, because I mean. Doing these things, you, I guess you're. I'm assuming you've traveled quite a bit, so yes. yeah. you know how that changes how you look at you know when you come back home, like the whole Tom Wolf thing. You can never come home again, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you yeah. want to start and like you know maybe yeah. go the process of the movie, you know what? I will. Yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, I, I could actually start with um, uh, my first experience with that kind of international travel uh, because you're right. This. My life as a documentary filmmaker, I've been lucky enough that it's taken me around the world to some surprising places. But all of this, I think, really started as a teenager. I'll tell just like a brief story. Um, I grew up in sort of a secular Jewish household in Pennsylvania suburbs, and uh, you know, you could probably imagine what it looked. if you've seen American Beauty, you're you're sort of in the right world of what my my life looked like. But the religion thing was not a, a huge deal, although the cultural Judaism thing in America was sort of there. And like all of my friends and a lot of uh, Jewish teenagers in the suburbs, especially in America, uh, my parents had saved up money for me to go to Israel. Um, this was, you know, I was 15, I think it was the summer where I was turning 16, I believe. And I, uh, my, bro my older brother had gone. Everyone sort of came back with a similar experience. Um, there's these groups that, this is not birthright, everyone sort of knows about the birthright thing. These are, there's all sorts of youth groups and, and different kinds of groups that specialize in these summer trips for teenagers. Uh, Young Judea, I believe, was the one that my brother went on. There's a whole bunch with all these kinds of names. And uh, I was always just kind of um, <laughs> an angsty teenager and wanted to do something a little different than all my friends were doing. Uh, maybe there's some, some uh, you know, residue of just like wanting to be cool and, and be a little dangerous or something. And then I was also quite resistant to the, the taboo around criticisms of Israel that existed in my family, certainly, which was a very like left-leaning secular family. But it was like this one to and my community, but just this one topic that sort of, you know, open discourse was not uh, allowed to exist around. Where I was allowed to explore intellectually all sorts of ideas and all sorts of things, that was this one topic that I always felt sort of off limits to me, and I hated that, of course, as this angsty teenager. So, uh, put all that in the mix of this teenager, and what I did was ask my parents if I could use the money that they had saved to go somewhere else that summer, uh, and they they sort of said sure, which was really cool. And on a total whim, I was like, I had no idea where else I wanted to go. I had nothing else in my mind. Uh, my mom actually and I found this program called the Experiment in International Living. It still operates and is very cool. And if anyone happens to listen to this who has a teenage kid or happens to still be there, look into it. It's very cool. It's like summer programs. Um, I think it was a five or six week program, and it's like part homestay, part community service, part education, a little bit of fun. You kind of do a lot of stuff. Um, and I remember printing off uh, two. Uh, trips that they did, one in Thailand and one in Ghana, knowing nothing about either of them. 
And I ended up going to Ghana simply because my dad wanted to drive me to the airport and the Thailand program left from LAX and the Ghana program left from JFK, which was much closer. So I went to West Africa as a teenager knowing really nothing about the world and certainly nothing about Africa. That was, I could talk about this forever, but that really was my first moment, I think, that turned me into a filmmaker because when I landed and after going through this very interesting experience of just eye-opening um, levels of poverty, of my own confusion about my role in the, in, the, in the process of religion at a very overt level, of legacies of colonialism that you could see, and just sort of the confusion of a teenager thrust into that world. And then especially, I mean, that, that's one thing, but then coming home, as sort of, I think somewhere in your question, coming home and struggling to figure out how to express or talk about what the hell I just went through or the thoughts in my head when all of my other friends had done the Israel thing and everybody knows that story in American Jewish suburbs and so the parents who are like oh like they know that story and there's really not a lot of explanation you need to do they all can imagine what you did but then it was like you know Jay how was how was Africa and I was just paralyzed with where do I begin to even answer that that was where I think I fell in love with the process of trying to express a lot of these questions or explore a lot of these things through the medium of film. Um, so I just never stopped. I never looked back. I ended up, as you mentioned, making a film years later about a baseball team in East Africa that took me all over there. I've been all over Europe. This law film that I made took me all over the world, which is also super interesting. Um, but the questions just sort of never stopped. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, but it's a, it's a, I, was, I was sort of the same way. I, well, my family, I traveled early young because we moved to Canada from India and then we kept going back to India. So I got used to the going back somewhere and seeing something different, and then I think that gave me happy happy feet because I I move around a lot, I travel a lot, and I just, I think it's something that you know should be done. I mean, I, yes, I know people can't you know it's okay you can't afford it you can't do that, but I mean if when you're talking about education, I think that's one of the things that should be funded in education, especially like middle school or high school. Send the kids somewhere that's you know don't send them to Paris and. Have them yeah. stay in a Hilton, right? Send them somewhere that's different. Okay, you, you don't have to send them somewhere dangerous. You don't have to send them yeah. somewhere that you know is going to put them at potentially at risk. But out of the comfort zone a little bit and let them yeah. see how can other I, people leave. Can I share a story? Like it's a specific one from that first trip that has become sort of a um, origin story of a lot of my thinking and intellectual curiosity that I still struggle with. I'm actually, I'm thinking of uh, animating and I've been working on it a while, for a while, so I'm, I'm, it's another way of just trying to get this piece of art out there. But just, as you were talking, I was remembering the story of, so this is that first trip that I was on, this is West Africa, Ghana, this is 1999 or 98. This is pre-cell phone Africa is the reason that I say that, because for anyone who's been there, it changed kind of overnight the continent. This is pre-cell phone Africa. And it was the part of the trip where um, we had all split up. It was 10, 10 different uh, students, high school students from all over America. And there's a part of the trip where you split up and do a homestay individually, which is very cool because every house was sort of different. Like some people went off and stayed with middle class families. Some people were staying in huts. It was like this total interesting range. And then you would get back together and talk about it. This is the part of, tr of the trip where I was in a very small village called Amano Praso. I believe it's still there. It's in the middle of nowhere, West Africa. And I'd been going through a lot of these experiences from the moment I landed that were just very challenging and very different from any preconceived notion that I went into with, which at the time, this is the late 90s, I think the preconceived notions of Africa that I just were 
bouncing around in my head were like the Lion King and National <laughs> Geographic, like you know, uh, documentaries and like Sally Struthers Save the Children commercials. That's like a reference of uh, if you look her up, it's probably still on YouTube. Like that was what was in my head, which in some ways you can find if you look for it. If that's like the lens that you're expecting to see, you could filter out what you're seeing to see it. But if you have a bit of intellectual curiosity, it's just challenging and it's just much more confusing. And I remember having this. Uh, and I think this will actually be an interesting dovetail towards, towards some of the stuff maybe we could talk about with Islam. Uh, but this romanticism of poverty and romanticism of especially third world and non-white poverty where I was coming from, again, this very protected, coddled, to use this this lovely John Hyde word, existence in my suburban moment in Allentown with you know my mom doing my laundry and all like Game Boys everywhere and Nintendo and everything I could I could have was brought to me and and romanticizing some kind of life without that stuff of it's like oh you know they don't have the creature comforts that I have there in Africa but they're happy it's like they're poor but they're happy and having this notion of some sort of um, romanticized community everyone gets along they don't have a lot but they all share kind of lovely idea that you I think as a, as a white teenager growing up in the late 90s I had imposed upon what I was going to find there and I tell all that for the story. So I'll go back to the point where I'm now this teenager who's questioning all of these things that I'm seeing and struggling to fit them into that narrative because it's a nastier place than that, as you know. Like, it's more of a step on your neighbor's throat to get the next meal kind of place than like Kumbaya. There's tribalism and there's yeah. racism and like you're just confronted with all of this. And so I'm a couple weeks into this experience and I'm walking on this hill. And this the community service thing we were doing was building this elementary school in the middle of nowhere. It was a lovely little project. So I'm in this this village of maybe 200, 300 people, and it's beautiful. And I'm walking there alone. It's early in the morning, and the, you know, I'm looking out as the sun is rising over the mist, over the over the, the rainforest that starts there, and it's gorgeous. And like this is the National Geographic version of Africa, and it's like it's there if you want to find it. And I'm looking out over this idyllic scene, and there's this little stream that runs through the middle of the village. And there's an old woman in the stream. And she's in the stream washing T-shirts by hand or clothes or whatever by hand. And, you know, shirtless and her, her breasts flopping out. This is like the National Geographic postcard. And I just pause because I'm staring at her there and all these questions bouncing around in my head. And I'm just staring at her washing these clothes. And this thing, this notion detonates somewhere in my brain of this little truth of that woman wants a fucking washing machine. And I didn't know what to do with that truth. And I still don't really know what to do with that truth, but I know that that's a truth. Whether that washing machine guarantees happiness for her or not, I have no idea, but I just knew she wants one, and if she had it, she wouldn't be in that damn river probably getting malaria, and maybe she would have three more hours in this day that she could do to you know, study philosophy in some perfect utopia, whatever she wanted to do. But that... that um, complicated truth of the world was true to me then and I didn't know what to do with it I didn't know how to express it it's become this story that I just need to get out in sort of an animation but that that's part of the sort of intellectual journey that that you were so right for me I don't know what how my life would have turned out without that moment but I know it's better intellectually for having that moment and I, I'm with you if there was some way to magically grant every teenager out there an ability to travel and really travel in that way uh, with this level of curiosity, this lever, level of interest that, you know, we'd all be better for it. I know I'm better for it. I know it frames a lot of my experience still. Well, okay, 
that was actually really cool because but i want to touch on something that you talked about there there's something i noticed as well and it is even as young as the first time i went back to india when i was 10. yeah um you know, so i was young but first second grade they're talking about different cultures and you know when i'd hear about india and it's like oh it's this really spiritual place and everyone's at peace and all that okay i was six when i left so maybe my memories are a little vague but then when i went back at 10 i'm looking at this i'm like what are they talking about right. you know even going out into the countryside where uh my great uncle lived and going on his farm yes they're you know they're working and they're content i don't want to say they're happy or whatever right like they're content with their lives they're doing okay they're not starving but at the same time like is it washing your clothes on rocks yeah you know there is no uh, I, I mean they elevate that to like a such a virtue like like living in that kind of, and I don't want to say misery because it's not, they, their lives weren't yeah. miserable, but spending three hours washing your clothes, beating them against rocks, yeah. you know, is a bit pretty miserable thing to be doing. And it's, but like, so yeah, young, I just got that, like, you don't know what you're talking about and why are you yeah. making that sound so pretty? I, I think, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I don't know either. I, it, there is this sort of just psychological, it seems, habit of imposing, yeah, this, um, I guess it's a naturalist fallacy. There's this fallacy of like back to nature and the simple life, and you know it, maybe it's because we're a little miserable with our. We have all the toys we want, but they're, are they truly making us happy? And then we badly want the answer to be, well, okay, let's find some culture or some civilization without all that stuff, and that's the that's the secret that'll like prove that that's where the happiness somehow lies. Which of course it's much that it's like way too simple of a story. I've. I've been to, to Africa, West and East Africa, all, mostly, all, actually all Sub-Saharan Africa, um, to this point in my life many, many times, and I've also had the rare opportunity, we could talk about why, of being there with people who are coming for the first time many, many times. And there's this, and I, I'm guilty of it too, there's this phenomenon, I wonder if you'll agree with it, of walking through the ghetto, this is their word, the ghetto in these places, some slums, whatever you want to put it, in Africa, for the first time with someone who's never seen it before, a Westerner. And without fail, we walk through, I've seen it a lot now, and we get to the other side of sort of where there's always some sort of opening or a street where like you get a chance to breathe suddenly and you're walking through, you're seeing a lot of stuff comes, comes at you in these slums. Indian slums are very similar. And you get to the other side and without fail, the person that I'm with always says the sentence, they're poor but they're happy, always. And it's always so, um, it's like they want that simple sentence to be true, where it's like, okay, they're poor and blank. They're poor in a lot of things. Some of them might be poor and happy. Some of them are poor and unhappy. Some of them are poor and angry. Some of them are poor and smart. Some of them are poor and stupid. They're poor and blank. They're humans. It's a human experience, and it's a complicated thing. But this desire to like tell a really simple story that we badly want to be true, I think probably relates, again, to you know, thinking at home of like, I, I have an iPhone next to me and this laptop here and all these creature comforts, but am I truly fulfilled and wanting to find some sort of simple answer for that where it just turns out that that's not, <laughs> it, it, we know it's a patron, it's, it's a really patronizing view actually for anyone who's lived it. It's like, wait a minute, like, I'm, give me your stuff if you're not happy with it. <laughs> like, you're a Westerner. If you don't like your laundry machine, give it to me. I'll use it. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and it, becomes, yeah, it becomes a much more um, complicated thing. It does seem the, the 
the well-meaning political left is a little more infected with this romanticization, which is maybe something that relates to the the view of, of colonialism and Islam, if we hinge to that at any point. Uh, but I'm not sure. It's, it, it, I, yes, I do know it, that it primed me, hopefully, to be a little more critical when I would feel those things about myself. Yeah, yeah okay, so just to switch gears a little bit. And going building on that, like it, it would be a, a good segue to talk a bit about Islam and uh, the movie yeah. you've just done. Um, I mean, I get, I, I see that a lot. Uh, I was never anyone who really spoke out about anything much, right? Yeah. I, I, I had certain principles that I respected, and if I thought they were being violated, I would speak out against it. But I was, it was only after I got back from overseas and just saw all this insanity, and I'm, and I, I think I came back right when everything was just going like at the tipping point and I was like and I just couldn't believe it and again the Islam thing for me was not a big deal because at that point I'd been an atheist for you know 30 years so it was like eh whatever it's, it wasn't you know I didn't spend time thinking about it but then I heard all these things well it's all oh, that's just their culture and it's you know who are we to complain and you know we we did all these evil things and then the, you know famously the, the, the Ben Affleck Sam Harris thing on yeah. Bill Maher I mean and that just really upset me. I mean, it, it, I felt like I was being told that I don't know what's good for myself. Yeah. That I'm not capable of standing up for myself. I need protection. But not only do I need protection, I need protection and rescuing from problems that were caused by people other than me because I'm too stupid or brown people are too stupid to have caused their own problems. Yeah. And it, it's like, no, I'm sorry, but give it a rest. Yeah, you know, like and you know, I keep getting told about oh well, you know, you have to look at the, the the person's narrative and their life, you know, their life experience and all this. I'm like, okay, well, I'm telling you about my life experience. How is that any less meaningful than someone else's? Just because it doesn't fit what you want to talk about, right? And it's, I I find that like like you said, patronizing and just condescending, and it, I find that more offensive than someone, you know, being overtly racist to me. Like being yeah. overtly racist, like I could deal with that. I know where it's coming from, but something like this, it's you know, that, oh, we want to do good. It's like, no, you don't. Yeah, you might think you do, but you're not doing anyone any good. Yeah, I think I got it from Douglas Murray. He doesn't say it in the film, but but there's some line about you know, America needs to get over itself and realize the rest of the world can get itself into trouble perfectly fine without. <laughs> like, there's a way to flip that sort of anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist bent that the, the woke left kind of loves to, to hinge on back on themselves of like, you know, you're actually doing it. You're actually making this claim that like you caused all the problems. It was like, get over yourself, dude. Like, yeah. America is complicated and certainly has made a lot of mistakes, but the rest of the world is plenty capable of causing problems on their own. Which, which, is, a, which is a way, like, it's, it's capable of fixing the problems, it's capable of causing their own problems. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's... Uh, so you came back post-9-11 then? It, like, yeah, that's I, I, I left 2002 yeah. and I came back 2014. Yeah, so you really missed the, like, the descent into madness, like the full... For oh, me, yeah. it was like 9-11 was the, was the tipping point for me to start asking questions. Of course, I made this film much, much later. I went off and did my own things, and um, but that was when, on, on a personal level, I started asking some questions some just friends and yeah certainly there wasn't any space that was open up that seemed rational and then when Sam started writing I, yeah I started reading his work and following it closely so um, yeah it's been a, it's a long time coming I don't, I don't know where you want to well, no, okay, like, 
kind of sticking to this a little bit, just like the way people talk about it. Because okay, I mentioned this to you earlier. I first saw the movie. I mean, I read the book. Uh, huge amount of respect for Sam. You know, I respect what Majid is trying to do, especially the anti extremism. Um, yeah. You know, because when people, when I've spoken to people and they're being critical of that, I said, listen. You know, you take ex-gang members, police take ex-gang members, and so do FBI or you know ex-white supremacists to help fight against, you know, white supremacy or gang banging and stuff. So to use a ex-extremist to counter extremism to me is a perfectly logical idea, right? It's so I guess yeah. I respect all that. Um, but the first time I saw the movie, I was watching it, and it was I have some issues with, you know, with like what how Majid thinks about Islam, and I was looking at it from that lens, and I'm like, okay, well, it's you know, and then I saw you in a podcast, um, and you were talking about how it was, you know, more about the conversation. And so then I watched yeah. it again, and it gave me a whole new light on it. Yes, you know, I still have disagreements, but you know, these were the two guys from the way they tell the story. They they almost came to blows, and you know, and yeah. then then they collaborated and they got together and they were able to find common ground and how to talk. And you know, obviously, you know, Sam doesn't believe in any of the metaphysical stuff. Uh, I'm not right. sure how much of it Majid believes or not, but you know, that's, that's, that's up to him, but he has some belief in that. So there is obviously a huge you know, point of difference, right? But they got together and they talked and they worked it out. And that's, that's where, you know, like I said, that second viewing of it, looking at through that lens made me appreciate it a lot more than just being critical of how Majid talks about Islam. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, um, you may have seen the answer, and I'll continue here with this with this push that the film is much much more for me at least about the subtitle and the first word in the in the film Islam and the future of tolerance. For me, the much more intellectually interesting conversation and really the conversation that um, I think much this might sound weird, but more hinges on at least in my viewing is actually the subtitle is the future of tolerance. Islam is the topic that they happen to clash on, but this notion of defining what tolerance is. and So, uh, like, I'll answer it. Um, I just did a screening in Iceland, which was actually really phenomenal, a great conversation. And we ended up talking about, because Iceland's an interesting place. Iceland literally has 300,000 people who are Icelanders. It's like this tiny place. And less than 1,000 Muslims. So it's like they don't, they barely touch this problem directly. But there's a lot of people interested in it. And we, we ended up sort of talking about on this notion of tolerance and I'll, I'll invoke the Enlightenment here, and Enlightenment values is generally the methodology of science applied wherever you can. In the best light, that's what the Enlightenment values are, which means a culture of criticism, wondering whether you're wrong, um, and and always, oh, it never one. If you're 100% certain about something, like you probably made a mistake. Anti-utopia is basically enlightenment, which is the, the irony of it. And anyone who claims that like they found the answer, you should be very skeptical of. That entails this culture of criticism in an open society, and and a a uh, <laughs> to invoke a, a word that I'm just failing to find another one, a faith that the system itself, whatever system that you have, let's call it science, is robust enough and resilient enough that it can that it, it is not afraid to consider bad ideas. It's not afraid to let bad ideas into the system because it knows that it will snuff them out as wrong and bad ideas. You have to start smuggling in a lot of really important philosophy about object, objective morality and objective truth here. It's vitally important that we do that, but if you are afraid of an idea that's bad, you're actually admitting failure that whatever system you have in place and whatever methodology you have in place to defeat that bad idea 
in whatever time scale is uh, moral, uh, it's just not good enough. You're actually failing to defend the Enlightenment by building walls where you let zero immigrants in because you're afraid of their ideas. It ought to be that you trust the system enough and that you believe in the system enough and you know how to def defend the system enough and the values enough that you can allow these bad ideas enjoy the culture of criticism and the good ideas will win. It's possible that you have some bad ideas and that you'll be influenced. It's possible. On this topic of metaphysics, it, it just happens to not be, it, you won't be convinced because those aren't right. Uh, but if you're afraid of them, then, then you're actually failing to defend the civilization and the ideas that you think you're, failing, er, that you think you're defending. So the, a lot of the times where we, we criticize the left of, you know, the, the woke left here of actually, you know, the, the soft bigotry of low expectations and failing to defend the people that, that they want to defend, in this case Muslims, I, I think we can flip that around also of the people who rightfully are making that point of if you're afraid of letting bad ideas in, onto your shore, you're failing to defend the Enlightenment, actually, because it's about allowing bad ideas because they won't win and they won't survive. Now, there's a limit. I'm not saying open borders. There's a limit. If you're Iceland with 300,000 people and you let in 2 million people with bad ideas, the system might break. There's a, there's a pace and a limit, um, and we can always argue about how many bad ideas you allow at any given time and how to operate on that. That's a political conversation that's really important as well, but I think it's an important point worth making, that why I made the film, why the subtitle is important, um, it, and why it's pointed more so, it, it's a film geared much more towards the Westerner who doesn't know how to talk about this problem than the, than the Muslim himself wondering whether they should be a Muslim anymore. No, I, like, if, that, if it's effective for Muslims, I actually am not sure. But I, I hope it's effective for people to have this conversation. Because what I fear, and we're talking about the overreaction coming back after 9-11, is abandoning the project of the Enlightenment because we're so damn scared of something that's not rational to be scared of, and admitting that we actually don't believe in the pro project of the Enlightenment is strong enough or robust enough to, to t take some bad ideas and win. And it might take some uh, some generations. You know, this isn't, if, it's, if somebody in generation one comes in with a bad idea, you hope generation two, the idea is, is a little less potent and by generation three it's gone. That's why the great melting pot analogy is something we also can't lose or leave. I think that is the enlightenment in a, in a nice political cartoon. Um, that's the real fear. If we lose that project, which has just been so damn successful for the world and should continue to be successful, um, because we're because we don't actually know how to defend it or believe in it, it's it's the same project. We could lose this on both fronts. Muslims are certainly in danger because people who are purporting to protect them by not allowing the conversation are actually hurting them. And then the entire project of the Enlightenment is in danger by being so afraid to have the conversation or not allowing the conversation because you don't truly believe that you can win the argument. Um, yeah, we're at, we're at an interesting, I think you said, tipping point. Uh, maybe it's tips. I hope not. But I, mean, I hope not also. Yeah. I mean, okay, like, okay, getting back to that, and okay, so just talk about immigration for a second. And I sure. agree with you there. Uh, you know, you can't have open borders, you can't have closed borders. Like, the two extremes, just, neither of them is tenable, and there's no point. So let's let's try to find some sort of common ground here, right? And um, I'll give you an example from Canada, just because uh, we let in a lot of refugees from Syria and Iraq, which, laudable, and I, I'm glad they did it. Uh, they were supposed to bring in more Yazidis than they did, but they didn't. And, I mean, I, I, again, that these are things when you're, okay, we're going to take in refugees, who are most at risk? These are the conversations you should have, right? 
Um, but that's one thing. But can you actually help them? So you yeah. let in 25000 Are you providing them? And these are things that you have to look at. These are things, again, you know, you can use, you have to look at them critically. You have to look at them reasonably. And some emotion is going to come into play because you are talking about people's lives. But if we let in 30000 but we can't really provide them any services, we can just provide them with a place to live and then set them free, are you actually helping them? Yes, they're out of a war zone and they're not an immediate threat, but how are you actually helping them? Like, are you helping them cope with psychological issues? I mean, I was in a war zone. I saw some bad stuff, nothing nearly as bad as what soldiers would see. Or I, I, there's no way I could compare it with people who are actually living in a place like that, right? Like, I just, you know. So what are the issues they're having? So if you can only let in 15,000, but you can help that 15,000 properly, isn't that a better move than letting in 30,000 and not really helping them? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Okay, and then getting back to the immigration thing. When my parents immigrated to Canada, that was back in 75, December 75, right? So our family moved here. The government's offered courses. They said, okay, these are the values that we have in Canada. You're allowed to practice your religion freely, but you can't force it on people. You know, just basically going through what your rights are and what, and when I say obligations, it's not something that you're going to be held at with the point of a gun, but, you know, take pride in your society. Take, you know, and this is for immigrants and all citizens. This, you know, the state owes you rights, but you owe the state and your society some obligation, some duty, and some level of gratitude that, you know, this goes back to why travel is important to compare what you have to other people, right? Yeah. It, it, you, and like again, this is not at a point of a gun, like go, go, go help the society, but especially if you're immigrating, especially if you're coming in as a refugee or an asylum seeker, any, there should be some gratitude from you towards a society that's helping you. You know, at the very least, learn what their culture is about, learn what their laws are, learn what their and what, what you know. When I say laws, they're like don't jaywalk. I don't mean that, but just like the norms and you know their traditions and what people are and. Don't just impose whatever it is you're doing. And so, I mean, people on the ground should be able to talk. You know, you should we should be able to talk about it like this. Government should put in more things. Like, I don't know what the system is in the States. In Canada, it can take 18 months to two years to get immigration, like to get a visa to immigrate. You have 18 months to two years to talk to these people about things like this. Why not take that advantage, right? Yeah. Can I... Yeah, I've been, I've been really thinking about this notion of... Uh, values and laws and all this kind of stuff a lot recently and I've been posting on, on lovely social media about some of this stuff <laughs> just to sort of get like get my thoughts out a lot about it but uh, I, I think what's I, I wish the conversation would shift I think it's dangerous to talk about purely values and culture whether it's American or Canadian or German or whatever it's going to be as um the result, like the output of the epistemology of how we reached them and derived at them. Um, I wish this is something that I've been like pushing back about. I saw Ben Shapiro, no relation, uh, posting about Judeo-Christian values and, and trying to equate them to the Enlightenment. And, and I'm just so sick of seeing it because it, it it's. I could go on this rant. I ranted online, so I wanted to do it now. People could find, find, find my rant. But, but what's important to take away from it, in my view, is the epistemology. It's the methodology, the confusion of the output of a system versus the system itself. If, I, I hope what we could be proud of in the West is the system. The va our values are actually the system by which we derive these laws at, which means the laws are not set in stone. 
it's a system of hopefully error correction and amendments, all this stuff that we talk about is generally trying to take enlightenment values and codify them as much as you can into some sort of methodology of lawmaking and culture making, whatever it is that it, you need freedom of speech for it, if that's going to equate to the culture of criticism and always wondering whether you're wrong and finding the best ideas. It's like the, 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 the system itself is what we ought to have pride in and the methodology of how we derive at these laws and these cultures. They're almost like secondary, where the, the culture, the system that you're trying to teach is that process, the process of criticism, the process of finding the best explanations for phenomenon in the universe. The process is, is what we ought to be proud of and, and give classes in, not like this is what you eat for Thanksgiving. But like, th th those are fun traditions and this kind of stuff. It's got to be like this process of the culture. And I, and I wanted to, because I also pointed at the science community, I was pointing to this confusion that the faithful or people like Ben or people who clearly have some sort of religion tend to make this mistake. You and I were talking about it, of um, you know, science being the a bunch of, of things on the shelf so that, that science has resulted in. The science is the methodology. We're, we're talking about what we should name it and all that kind of stuff. It's great. And then science-minded people make the same mistake with religions, that religions are the output of a methodology. And it is a methodology. Like I said, it has one step, the methodology of faith, which has, is totally diametrically opposed to science. There is zero overlap when defined correctly. Zero. There's no agreement here. But faith has a methodology. You could tell me what it's like in Saudi Arabia and India and all these places. The faith, the methodology is one step, and it is... Can, it, at the moment of conjecturing two things, I'm stealing this from David Deutsch, who's one of my intellectual heroes, the moment of conjecture, of trying to explain phenomenon in the universe, he uses a great example in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, of coming up for an explanation of why the seasons change. And one explanation, let's just say you and I are people, and we don't know why it is, and this is like thousands of years ago, and you conjecture that it's like you have this crazy idea that actually the, the earth is this ball and the axis tilts like this as it goes around and that's your reason why and the sun shines on us when we're here and then the other half of the year it doesn't so it's cold this half of the year that's an explanation purely in a vacuum is just conjecture and I have my own and I say well I think there's two gods one is a, the god of warmth and one of the god is cold and I think like I've been reading the stars and the god of cold winds during this season and the god of warm winds during this is at this moment before we've done any science or any faith we're both on actually an equal playing field we both just have a conjecture and now the methodology and it's an explanation and frankly it's a full explanation mine fully explains it yours fully explains it which one is good which one is bad and how do we do that that's where you need a methodology otherwise you're always just staying in this equal conjecture mode this is where science and faith are two methods the method of science is well there's, let's look at evidence in the universe to judge which one of these is right. It turns out we can do that with yours. It turns out mine's not even a good explanation because you, because it can explain itself and it can explain its exact opposite. If it's the middle of January and suddenly it's 90 degrees, my explanation still holds because I'm like, well, I guess the God of Warmth is winning today. Your explanation doesn't hold. But Deutsch would say one's a good and one's a bad. But faith is also a way to do this. Faith has one step. It says you as a human have no capacity to actually judge which explanation is good or bad. And you can't. So send yourself to the conjecture, just accept it, and that's the best you could ever do. That's it. That, that, that God has some sort of, that there is such a thing called God, which is a separate intellect than a human, and we have zero access to actually ever judge which one of these is correct. 
That's called faith. It takes one step. It is a methodology. I would claim it's anti-enlightenment. Good explanation, or what is a good explanation? We have all this evidence in the universe, and that's the best we can do, and that's where we're going we're gonna to extract out of the universe itself notions of truth, notions of good explanation that are totally diametrically opposed. The methodology of the Enlightenment, I hope, is what we could be proud of when an immigrant comes in and we're trying to, to teach our our culture or our values or get them to accept that or get them to understand that. It's like that notion of open discourse, how to do that, what it takes to, to evaluate evidence in yourself, in your society, etc., how our system tries to equate that sloppily on with voting and all this kind of stuff. But it's always about, like, that's what we're proud of. And I think that's a hard... That's a hard. That's a harder transition for people than than we think it is. We think it ought to just like enforce itself, and a lot of people adopt it. But we know there are very much not. They're very much into the faith methodology of evaluating the universe, and people come with those ideas, and 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 that's that's something that might take a couple generations. Hopefully, it doesn't. Um, I don't know how it's going in Canada, but I guess after 9/11 and with the Patriot Act, we could go all the way back, just worrying about whatever secret sauce we have in America to, it seems, uh, you know, uh, convince people, newcomers, the world, etc., that this experiment of trying to have a something called a nation that operates on these principles, going back to like the Gettysburg Address, is possible and can work. And, and, and inherently allows bad ideas into it, and sometimes they're a problem, but we have trust in the, in the, the Enlightenment values themselves to, to win those values. That's, that's, that's the general kind of um, conversation that we just have to keep, keep alive. Yeah, but, I don't even know why I started talking about Okay, no, no, that. that's, that's fine, actually, because, okay, a lot of what you said I agree with. And when I said values, again, when you said, okay, you know, I don't have the proper word for it. Totally. Uh, I was talking more about like first principles. So yes, things like yeah. we believe in, you know, having public discourse. We believe in letting people express their ideas. We believe in, you know, calm, like discussing them, engaging with them, evaluating based on these principles, you know, like here are our principles. And so, I mean, obviously including your own daughter, yeah, yeah, including yeah, son of the yeah, uh, gay, like, uh, yes, yeah. you know, this is what we try to promote. Now, obviously you can't stop someone from coming in and kicking their 16 year old son out on the street because they're gay. Or their sixteen-year-old sure. daughter. Okay, it, it happens everywhere. It ha you know, it happens with people. You know, in the south, the Christ evangelical Christians. You know, yeah. so yeah. So I mean, it's but it's more things like okay, we like all the. It was more you know, so you have these two extremes. One say you have to let everyone in. Everyone's going to be as soon as they come in, they're all love and peace and blah blah blah. And then you have the other side, which is no, only let white people in. Don't let these. You know, they don't have anything to do with our comment. I would much prefer. You know, people who believe in secular values or or pay lip service at least, right? If if you find out they're false afterwards, if they're waiting immigration status, if they're waiting whatever, you can you should be strict with them. But you know, if someone comes in and they're a you know far right, uh, you know, racist from Hungary or Poland or wherever, I don't care from where I'm, I'm just picking those two because they just got those governments in, right? I, if someone's like that, I mean, I don't, I would don't want them in. I much prefer having a you know, a Muslim family who's secular or whatever, a, you know, Christian family from Uganda who's secular, who's trying to get away from that. And, yeah. and you know, at least... But, they, but, also, just, but also, what a wonderful uh, 
moment it should be celebrated if you do accept because you're bound to let's go to Uganda this country that I happen to have a lot of experience in um, if a Ugandan family immigrant immigrates and holds some you know strong homophobic racist ideas which is quite common there um, and being in an open society that believes in itself and believes in its values and can engage in a good faith but uh, a good faith discussion generally about that topic but not be afraid to, to, to have some moral moral courage that we know that there's a right answer to that specific question um, or at least we have a, a high probability that there's a right moral answer there which is that homophobia is, a, is an incoherent moral idea and you ought to abandon it for a better one uh, what like if in that hypothetical, someone comes to American shores with those ideas and 10 years later doesn't hold them, or even in a, in a worst case scenario, their son or daughter doesn't hold them at all. Like that, that should be celebrated as, as the success of the Enlightenment and the country itself. This isn't, I'm not saying like, let's let, it, let in all the racists and, the, and then, because again, there's balances to this and you can break the system with too many bad ideas. I, I'm totally with that. Um, but that, those moments should also be celebrated as as successes of the uh, of the system itself and of the enlightenment itself and of America itself a lot of those seem to be getting attacked under this guise of cultural appropriation or imperialism which we should talk about as this very anti-enlightenment notion that we're seeing rising on the woke left of like what are you talking about that's actually this is actually the promotion of again not the output of our values but the system that, that led to them and if you're not if you're not into that system, I'm not. I'm not sure what system that you're into. The only one left at your disposal is faith and and these awful, the Deutsch would call them static societies. These ideas that are just dead ends that are that are suicide. Um, so yeah, I mean, like that's. Uh, well, well, sorry, that, I'm trying to think that's like in my own family, all, all, almost because I'm, I'm. We're all immigrants here on some level, right? I'm third generation, I guess, American. My family were Eastern European Jews who came for whatever reason. I I don't know my great-great-grandfather. I could send you a picture. It's great. It's like a full, like, you know, I'm not that far removed from a full-beard Hasidic Jew somewhere in what is now Ukraine, I think. I don't know his political views, but I can almost guarantee that mine are more secular and more closer aligned to the Enlightenment than the ones he held. You know, whichever person in my family was was the, the the one to come over. Whatever magic that process is taking on in America, you know, it's. I, I think that's not unique. That I, that I that I'm I, I think closer aligned to Enlightenment values than my than the first ancestors in my family tree, and that's a process that we ought to celebrate, and that we ought to we ought to recognize and 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 pay attention to. So again, don't be afraid of immigrants with really bad ideas. I'm with you that there's a priority that we ought to prioritize people who may be ready on day one to that they know these values. But we also we also should have some we shouldn't be afraid to, to tell the world about good ideas in whatever politically way possible, especially on our own shores. And then we could talk about the complicated and stuff that you've dealt with about exporting those ideas. No no I, I don't mean so much that okay Oh, you you're opposed to homosexuality. I mean, I, I picked that as one one yeah. like example, right? Oh, you're opposed to homosexuality. We're not going to let you in, as long as okay, you can have whatever ideas you want, as long as that you believe in that underlying framework that someone can then contradict your ideas. If yeah. you believe in that underlying framework, it was like what you were talking about. Okay, well, the the new woke left or 
you know, the, the, the newly woke or the newly red-pilled, like, you know, either, they're, they're, this, they're the exact same people. You yeah. know, they have different talking points, but it's the same strategy and it's the same, you know, call-out culture. Everything's the same. It's just one's, one supports this, one supports that. Like, yeah. so that's when I was, that's like one of the things I want to try to do with this podcast for myself is, what are my first principles? Like, wh- am I truly that wedded to them? Can I alter some? Can I change some? And I mean, you know, I, people kept, and I, I've used the term that it's a foundation, but lately I was thinking, okay, you know what, maybe if I think of it more as a garden. So the first principles are the earth, which yes, it's it's not wholly solid, but it's got some room to move around. It can shift a little bit. So, and then, you know, when you weed the stuff out, those are the bad ideas. They're like, no, no, we don't need these. Let's get rid of them. And then the ones that are good, you let them flourish, right? And so I was thinking, okay, if you think of it as a foundation, it's far too rigid. You need something yeah. a little bit more flexible, a little bit more able to adapt to the times and not just be so rigid, right? And so I was kind of thinking of it like that. So where do the, what are their first principles? And I don't think they could define them themselves. Like, you know, they might say, oh, I believe in equity or I believe in diversity or, you know, any of these buzzwords, you know, like I, I'm a race realist or whatever. Like, okay, what does that mean? You know, like, yeah. well, like where do you where do those come from? Like, how do you derive those? You know, like, is this like a Hume thing? Is it an otter and is or like, you know, like where where do you where do you get these from? At least if I can show, okay, you know, I believe in like you said, the core values of the Enlightenment, the values of the individual, and their right to practice or not practice, their right to express themselves, their right to disagree, and you know, their right to be able to go up to the state and speak truth to power without fear of you know repercussions. Yeah. And so, I mean, like if ever, it, like I, it, this was something based off something, like I was playing on something Sam Harris had said, and you remember when he talked about the narrative narrative, how there was always a narrative to describe any certain narrative, and he was using it disparagingly. And then just sometime last year, I, I can't remember what, why it popped in my head, and I was like, okay, you know, maybe we need a conversation conversation. And it could be just, <laughs> yeah. just with yourself. Like, how are you talking about these things? How are you going by them? Like, if you, like, you know, I, I believe in, free speech so you know I, I actually did this last year I went back and read On Liberty and Areopagitica which I think are my two favorite texts on that subject uh, I read some others but I, I went back and reread some of the stuff from the Enlightenment that I you know that I held dear because some of it I hadn't read in 20 years you know like yeah. can I really say that I hold it that dear if I don't I might want to say I'm practicing but maybe I've forgotten something you know it's been a long time and uh, so I think more and more people need to start doing something along those lines or groups of people like what are we actually for like i think we're we're going past the need for things like left and right i, I think we should the, the the terms have lost so much meaning and they're they're so confused maybe we can look at uh, you know as for you know authoritarian and libertarian like libertarian more so in the sense of like a libert not not libertine because i've got like sexual connotations but you know like classical or liberal enlightenment values that type of thing right like so, because whether you want to talk about if Hitler was a socialist or not, you know, like I, I don't want to get into that debate, but you know, you have fascism and, and communism, which are authoritarian left and right. Then you have different forms of people who want civil liberties and how do they want to go about them. So just saying left and right or, you know, like the, the, we're losing. I think we, I can, uh, yeah, I've been, I think we're all struggling with this left, right thing and it's become meaningless and I agree with you, it really has. Um, I think there is. You brought up David Hume. I think it's great. I, I, you know, I'm a philosophy nerd, and, and this is what I'm, I'm all about as well. Is like first principles and uh, getting to the bottom of some of these, the real bedrock of 
of philosophy here and psychology as well. I want to try. I, I think I'm seeing a, a genuine rift on that makes sense. You've already talked about nationalism and globalism as maybe the new political divide, which I think is interesting and maybe we could talk about, although I, I don't think it's all-encompassing psychologically. I think it's certainly encompassing politically. I'm noticing this rift, and I think it came up. I don't want to bring up old public wounds with, wounds with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, but I do think there was something really important about that initial sort of clash with them that was actually a bit unresolved. Um, I think Brett did a really good job with, with moderating it, but I, but I think there is something, in it, and I, I want to I wanna get to the bottom of this and try my best to frame the argument of where I think Jordan is a conservative in, to try to rescue those words and the meanings of them if we can, if liberal and conservative mean anything here, or progressive and conservative mean anything here. I think there is a deep conversation to be had here that, that we're we're actually on psychologically, and it's this one that gets to a lot of the stuff you talked about with race realists. So I say this about Jordan often, that he can get out of a lot of trouble if he bracketed almost everything he said with two things in front of it. Um, if, he, if he prefaced almost everything controversial that he said before he said it with saying, um, keep in mind what I'm about to say is just an evolutionary psychological analysis of why we're in the situation we're in. It's an explanation of the situation that women wear lipstick to simulate sexual arousal because the female organism evolved in this way where it's, when it's sexually aroused, blood, in, blood flow increases and the lips become a bit more plump and a bit more red. So this lipstick is, is mimicking a signal to the to the male organism of sexual f fertility and and viability, etc. That's that's fine. That's an ex. That's a that's probably a very good, uh, if not complete, but very good evolutionary psychological explanation for why women wear lipstick. And then when the reporter asks him something like, "So should women complain when they're sexually harassed in the workplace when they're wearing lipstick?" and he sort of throws his hands up and says, "I don't know." Like whether he knows what he's doing there or not, and he knows it's going to be a bit controversial. Leave that aside. But if you finished that thing that he said with another bracket that said, so keep in mind, I am not making a normative claim, other, you know, a moral claim of how people ought to operate um, in this space, but I am just acknowledging that this is the situation we're in, so this is what the tension that we're in. And it's a bit difficult and maybe a lot to ask for humans to like suddenly snap their fingers and overcome this deep evolutionary, you know. Uh, um, so, you know, that, that being laid out, I think what we're left with at the end is is two positions. Maybe that was a bad example of the lipstick, but we're left with two positions. One of we clearly have inherited and bring a lot of baggage with us of evolutionary psychology and a long trail of evolution, which is not necessarily moral, and it's in us. And it might be a lot to ask for us to just snap our fingers and overcome it. So there, there is this this notion of of. I think Sam and Jordan and probably everyone in this conversation, well, I don't know, actually, but people, that's like where the disagreement starts, and I think there is an actual disagreement between something that you can call conservative and something that you can call progressive, whereas the progressive might say, well, of course we have a moral obligation to overcome the residue of our evolutionary bullshit, so we ought, we ought to do that, and we can do that without invoking any religious bullshit to do it. We can do that. Jordan doubts, I think, that last statement, that it is doable without the religious story and the religious framework and all the Jungian stuff he talks about. He thinks we need those stories in order to do that to sort of 
usher the human psycho psychology itself through that notion where then you don't harass the woman wearing lipstick or whatever, if you follow the analogy. Um, I would call the second one conservative, that doubts that humans can progress through that evolution or were shackled to it to a degree that's rather concerning. That is something I would call conservative. You can throw almost everything into that notion of so when someone says a race realist I think they're trying in a very sloppy way to have this kind of conversation of well of course we're evolved to be racist on some level where you know, because we probably are like we're born with these biases and if you're if you're a, an animal evolving on the savannah you of course show a bias towards your kin and people that look like you and the animals that were openly super trustful of things that didn't look like them and didn't sound like them probably died off first so there was an evolutionary trend towards clustering and tribalism of course of course and if you call that race realist fine but then you're stuck at the same thing at the end of that sentence where should you overcome that how do you do it and i think there's this genuine split between people who think we can't overcome that. We're human, and that's how we are, and that's how we ought to be. And certain, or people who think, well, we ought to overcome it, but we can't without the religious bullshit. And then there's this other group of people who says, we ought to overcome it, and we can, and it's not so damn hard to come this way. And then maybe another group that says, we ought to overcome it. We acknowledge that it's difficult. We don't need the religious bullshit to do it. So here's a bunch of tools. And I, that's where I would put most of the honest conversation happening now. And things like the moral landscape that Sam wrote, or, or the, these kind of conversations about what, if there is, without invoking the bullshit, how do you do it? How do you get society from point A to point B, if we agree we ought to go to point B, with the bullshit, without the bullshit, etc.? I think a lot of frameworks fall into this general psychological split. I think this gets to a lot of John Haidt's work with, with uh, The Righteous Mind. Um, but, but I think there is a genuine split there, and it's why Jordan calling himself conservative and maybe a lot of people red-pilling themselves uh, are falling into that same trap of like, oh, wait, he's right. This is actually, this is a real thing. That's why women wear lipstick, and that's a real thing, because he's right. And some of the tragedy about that is also the lack of a lot of people having these conversations, honestly, because it does certainly, which is also just dishonest. So... I think the fact that Jordan got so popular is interesting, but also points to the fact that there's just not a lot of people having these conversations, particularly about evolutionary psychology, and that's a problem. We need more people in that pool, because uh, love him or hate him, Jordan shouldn't really be rare. There should be a lot of people having these conversations. Yeah, I mean, okay, I have some respect for what he does, but when he starts getting to some of his metaphysical stuff, my eyes glaze over. And then I mean, some of the things he says, again, this guy's on stage, he's talking, maybe he misspoke, and it's this is not like a defense or anything, but there was, I think it was one of the ones in London with him and Sam, and it was Douglas Murray moderating, and, you know, Sam said something along the lines, well, I don't even really know what you believe, and the crowd started laughing, and then he went on this tirade about how no one can know what they believe, and, you know, it's a really complicated thing, and then yet he spouts out what he believes. So, like I said, I mean, I'll, you know, people can misspeak, people can, you know, you know, like I, I probably done it a hundred times already today. Like it's just you, you'll talk over yourself and you'll contradict what you've just said. So some things like that make me a little bit hesitant. But when you're talking about the myth, um, you know, I think he's right there in some sense. And it's not that you need these religious myths to, you know, like because he did the whole thing where he went through Genesis, right? He did a whole series where he read through Genesis, and it's okay. 
fine, but when you get to Genesis and you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, like, how do you justify that? How do you, you know, what what is the lesson that's being taught by uh, yeah. Lot's daughters getting them drunk and then, you know, raping them so they can get pregnant, right? You might have the story for it. But don't, but don't you, like, the question for him and where mm-hmm. I'm trying to sort of hinge to there is, does he think God is necessary? Again, yeah. if he thinks we ought to overcome the residue of our evolution and he thinks God is a necessary step to do that just because of the human yeah. nature and human fallibility and human weakness, or does he think God is actually real? And it, like, and I don't. And he probably thinks that question doesn't matter, or are the exact same thing, which is an interesting sort of pragmatic or pragmatism philosophy that I don't really adopt. But that's the language that he uses there to sort of squirrel around that conversation. If I give him the benefit of the doubt, I think he thinks that it that it is the same question, and that he does think it's necessary, which he's just wrong about. But this is a David Hume thing about the is ought distinction that he's so damn sure that you can't. Sam tried it in Moral Landscape, which is interesting, with the worst possible universe of all universes and moving from there. I would argue that it's it's the same, it's the explanation, uh, finding good explanations or bad explanations, because David Deutsch does it uh, quite well as well. Uh, but but that, that's the... That's the hinge where he, where where I think philosophically at the bedrock he thinks God is necessary to make this final step to to, to overcome the residue of our evolution. I won't speak for him. I guess we're speaking a lot for people that we aren't. Yeah, yeah, in this oh, conversation, yeah but that's I think it's it. important. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm just you know giving you my yeah, take yeah. on it and just um, sorry. No, no, that's fine. I mean, like I, I will, but okay, getting back to the myth thing because this was again something, and it's kind of goes into like you know like the the newly woke or the newly red pills or whatever. Um, so you know, I, I'm of the opinion that uh, okay, I was on a panel and I said one thing. I spoke for about a minute on this panel, and the only thing I talked about was why science wasn't enough to defeat religion. And I based it like I was talking about the Abrahamic faiths. And I was basing it on the, the the story of Adam and Eve. Right? God told them what science was. God said, "We created all this crap. I, I I created everything here for you. Worship me because I made all this. I'm the best." So the science was done. There is no exploring why the sun. Yeah, no, that's the you it, can't ex- ex- understand it, but just enjoy. It. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what they were denied was the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't denied the no- they weren't denied all knowledge, as some people say, right? It's the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's what mm-hmm. religion held okay. back. That that is what the priestly class held. We will tell you what your morals are. We will tell you what is good and what is true and what is right. You don't need to know the underlying truths of where we came from and all that because you've been told that and so I mean we've had you know call them Judeo-Christian values I don't even like that term because a lot of them predate Judaism even right so um, so but because call them that and you take them in I'm not saying that they're enlightened values but you call those those Judeo-Christian values and that's what came up with this you know what's good and evil right and then you can put an Islam in that as well and that's what they were holding on to so and then you know you go to church or synagogue or mosque every week um, you know, you have that repeated to you or like in the 80s when Tony Robbins was really big, you know, people were going seeing these inspirational seminars over and over and over again because it just doesn't stick, right? Uh, you know, you go back, like, why do we have cave paintings in France? We sat around the fire telling ourselves stories and, you know, talked about the best hunter and made a hero out of him or whatever, you know, like these things evolve. You know, you can watch the evolution of all these stories, how they go along. And then we, when as North America and Europe started getting more secular, I think our myths were like the water cooler shows. So, you know, before you had satellite TV, everyone, you know, I don't know if you remember in like the the late 80s, early 90s when NBC had all those comedies on like Thursday night. And then Friday morning, everyone's talking about Seinfeld and Friends and whatever, right? Yeah. 
I think we've diluted our myth so much. Like, I mean, you could find a channel on satellite now that fits any niche market, you know? Like, you, I mean, Jesus Christ, there's shows about crab fishermen, for Christ's sake. You know, like, you're like, yeah. you're like there, there's such niche markets that unless something comes around like Game of Thrones, so for the right. eight weeks that it's playing, you know, a lot of people are talking about it. We're sharing something. Um, you know, we don't even really have sports that much anymore. Like, sports has turned political. Like, everything has turned into something to divide you. Okay, granted, sports is divisive. Like, I'm going to cheer for the, you know, if you're a baseball fan, I'll cheer for the Yankees or the Red Sox, right? Or whatever. Like, I'm a Phillies fan, by the way. Okay, fine. <laughs> but, you know, like, but you know what I mean? Like, it's, there is some of that, but that's almost a fun rivalry. You know, unless, you know, I, I've, seen yeah. some, I've seen some riots and stuff. I've seen some fights at hockey games in Montreal. <laughs> but, yeah, okay. But, I mean, like, those are, like, fun kind of rivalries. And they're okay to exploit to a little bit. But when you don't have anything like that you can share as a society. I think that's what's breaking down a lot of our conversation. I think that's why a lot of these people are becoming newly woke or newly red-pilled. And I started thinking about this and I started seeing it. And I see a lot of similarities to someone who's just become red-pilled, as they say, or oh, I'm, you know, like usually like you become woke by going and taking certain classes at university, right? They, it gets indoctrinated. They act like converts. Like when I see a convert to Islam, and one of my friends has been very public about her conversion to Catholicism, and I and she's been tweeting out about it and posting on Facebook, and she's been like she's been a Catholic convert for just a little over a year now, and she was tweeting all about it and talking all about it, and their attitudes of like, my God, this is the best, and like when you see someone who's like being you know like I said newly red pilled or you know newly woke, it's like it's they've got this faith now and they want to show that they're better than everyone else. Oh, I, I might be new at this, but I'm better than you who be, who's been practicing this for 20 years, right? Or 50 years, whatever. And I see that newly converted zeal yeah. in a lot of these people. And it's, it's, it's scary because it's... I don't know if you read that article that James Lindsay wrote in Aereo about uh, the religion of postmodernism. And it was a, it's a long article. It's about 15,000 words. And he wasn't technically calling it a religion. He was making some comparisons on how they have... You know, like the dogmatic thinking, sort of how religion does. You know, original sin is the same as the patriarchy or white supremacy or you know all that kind of stuff. It was it was really interesting, but I, I you know I, I don't remember seeing anything about that. Like the, the like I said, the, the newly woke or the newly red pilled remind me a lot of converts to Islam yeah. or now you know like I said, this one friend of mine is converted to Catholicism, and it's yep. there, there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah, John McWhorter also has been. I mean, I was lucky enough to have John. And Stephen Pinker on stage with me for uh, an event that ended up being half about linguistics and then a little bit about this stuff. But he's been uh, writing about this analogy as well. He's called it, he calls it anti-racism as our new religion, our flawed new religion, and he just keeps refining and lengthening the, ar- the argument. And I, I think it, yes, I think it goes even further than he initially sort of thought the analogy worked. He made those same kind of um, comparisons of like white privilege being a r- original sin and you know it, it, all of the things sort of match and align if you haven't seen him do the the argument and lay it out he's he's been there's a lot of good articles well, I, saw, I saw the talk that you were talking about the one with pinker and, and him yeah although we sort of just skirted yeah. that because i thought people could find that argument and i linked to it on on a, this long twitter uh page as well um but yeah this is why i like to to go back to a lot of the other things we we're talking about it's the methodology if the methodology is religious like, like, like we need to start talking and reminding ourselves that science and religion or let's call it reason and faith, are methodologies. Again, that never overlap and don't touch. So, yeah, like if the result is postmodernism or woke leftness or whatever. But you also mentioned, I mean, we overcorrect and like 
they got out of one ditch on the side of the road and then just quickly swerved the car into the other ditch on the other side. And you're like, oh, come on, you were, for a minute there, you were like on the middle. Um, and I, but I think that's sort of natural. And I'll give some sort of, uh, you know, uh, slack to some people who do it. And now we live in this time where it, become, it can become, you can get trapped in the other ditch because it, it can become very profitable. <laughs> and, become, and, you, and doing that publicly is challenging. I won't name names here, but maybe people can infer who these people are. Um, but I think there is this, maybe like the most salient, damaging, and like annoying thing to realize is that you've been fooled, that you've been duped. And when someone sort of realizes that they've been duped by a political ideology or a religion or a con man or anything, that just like super pissed off feeling that you have and this notion of wanting revenge at that thing is kind of understandable. And this whole notion of like libtards and drinking lib liberal tears, it happens in both directions we know. But that one in particular, people who maybe are, are, are newly red-pilled who realize that, wait, the left is sort of been lying to me and like my college professors and I wasted all that money on college whatever it happens to be like that's fucking annoying so I get it that you want to like revel in that in that for a little bit I think a lot of people in the atheist community probably went through something similar with this in their teenage years like being a little bit too much of an angry atheist or an annoying atheist maybe your parents or your cousins and because it's like oh that's bullshit and because like you wasted your time maybe thinking about it or going to Hebrew school like wasted time and sunk cost in something that turns out to be bullshit is super annoying and it's sort of human to want a little revenge and you know want to see people, people cry over it a little bit and then you can become just intentionally provocative to just con you know continually drink liberal tears and invoke this I think David Frum used the analogy as Trump as the right's murder weapon is a great analogy of like, who the fuck knows if they even care what he's saying, but they definitely know he pisses people off, and they love that, and that makes some sense. So people, I, I think that's, but it's a human response. We should have some compassion for it, but we shouldn't let people get stuck in the other ditch on the other side of the road. It's like, okay, you've had your fun, you know, you drank, you, you bought a liberal tears mug or whatever the fuck it is, and you sipped from it, and you know, you've done all the things, but like, if you're interested in an actual uh, positive conversation, like. There's a really interesting playing field that's not just this like political battlefield all the time. Uh, but I, but I do have some sympathy for people who are. I think Sam's been using the word like the phenomenon of being captured by your audience. You can get captured by people who are really having a lot of fun in that ditch, financially captured, just emotionally captured. You get addicted to sort of the likes and all that kind of stuff. And we it, that's fair. We all and we should have a if anybody. I can't think of any names, but if anybody, maybe Andrew Sullivan's an interesting one who maybe overcorrected and came back. I'm not even sure. Maybe he's not a good example. But when you find the people who not just like come out of one ditch and then get celebrated for it, but if you find someone who came out of one ditch, overcorrected, and then came out of the, the other and found the middle, these that, that's like a real, maybe even more courageous and more difficult than the first coming out is like realizing you've overcorrected again. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, that's something we all have to yeah. Just well, okay. Here's one name. Um, okay. That, 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 no, good. Jamie Kilstein. Oh, I don't know. I okay, don't know. so uh, I saw him on Joe Rogan, hmm. and he was he'd become ultra woke, and he was you know totally hmm. progressive, and you know the whole call out culture and shaming people for having the wrong opinion, and then he, I can't remember he had a a discussion or an interview with someone, and he yeah. expanded on some ideas and they were unwoke or something and then he fell victim to that mm. 
and he realized what he's been doing and so he's brought himself back you know more to the center and try to like okay let's see if we can work this thing out so he's one of those examples of I'm not saying that he was a you know full on alt-right racist or whatever and then he overcorrected and went over to the other side but he did go over to that woke side and I mean like this is you know I'm paraphrasing a lot of what he's saying it was, you know it's a Joe Rogan interview so it's two to three hours long so um, but yeah so it's like he and he, he you know he talked his way about how he went from one extreme and then instead of going all the way to the other extreme he pulled himself more into the center which is I think I don't know where this idea came from that if the other group goes too far to one side we have to go further on our side it's like yeah. well maybe just rein yourself in and try to rein in the people from the other side who are able to be reined in like you know um, and like what when Pinker talked about there was a, the con, the the con, he was on a panel it was a, the rise of the alt right and that's when he got into all the trouble where he said that there's some intelligent people in the alt right and he got into you know oh my god Stephen Pinker is an alt right you know the gateway or something now or something yeah. stupid like that but I mean like, it's so by Hillary saying you know you're all deplorables that pushes some people over to that side you know it's yeah. granted there were single issue voters and I mean there's, there are in every election but maybe there were some people who had a you know difficulty thinking about certain things and they couldn't express themselves and here people come along tell you okay if you vote for this man you're the most evil person ever and it's just you know there's better ways to do it there's better ways to talk these people out of it and you know maybe like you said we should celebrate these people who went too far you know overcorrected too much and then came back and found a more centrist and a more reasonable position you know they they they, they yeah, realized yeah. what they were doing was wrong do you, like, do you like the term centrist in this language i'm so like undecided about like left right centrist but it's we don't have the terms like you were saying before okay we don't have a term we don't have like a term like like for faith right you know yeah. and that's one of the okay this is complete tangent this is one of the things I hate the most about the woke left they're making me hate language like narrative was a perfectly good word okay yeah. but but now it just has all these connotations like trigger was you know people could be triggered but now it you know it could mean someone that got you know, it did, we're losing so many words that are important I, I liked the word problematic but I've heard that that's problematic now <laughs> or this, this new thing now that they put eyes at the end of everything like that'll problemize that you know I saw one that said that will invisibilize the you know, toxic masculinity. I'm like, what? Invisible? Like, we can make up words now, just put eyes at the end of it, and we got a word? Like, it's, you know, I, I, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, it's getting too much. Like I said, it's total tangent yeah. here. But. Uh, I'll try to save one of them, because I'm not like, a, I don't know why, I'm just like not a fan of the left, right, center model, even to the centrist thing. Uh, I know I use the analogy of ditches on the side of a road, mm -hmm. so it sort of, it yeah. invokes a central sort mm -hmm. of channel somewhere, but, uh, the Deutschian language again. I'm just such a huge fan, but uh, of dynamic versus static, and the woke left being a static, he would call it meme, a static meme or a static idea, uh, where basically there are, there are taboos, there are there are things you can't criticize. There are it's it's a religion. This is the analogy going back to James and and John's analogy of this is a religion. Just call it it's, a religion inherently is a static system where where the answer is decided and you cannot question certain things. Maybe you can question some things. We were talking, you know, like this is there room, wiggle room within a religion to question things. This will go to Majid stuff or whatever. Uh, but a dynamic society is inherently open. It's inherently error-seeking, error-correcting, and inherently creative. That's where creativity happens. If there's ideas you can't think about, if there's thought crime and this Orwellian kind of thing, and if there's speech crime, this is an uncreative society, which is funny because you, you, I think we associate 
or the or the woke left wants to associate itself as such a creative, artistic kind of society. It's actually not. Uh, the real creativity, it, I think that split might survive even the language attack from the left of dynamic versus static, because I think they would, they take these words and they want to be these things. They want to be dynamic, but, but you, can, you can show them very easily how they are no, no longer dynamic because of their, their, uh, their staticness when it comes to a lot of issues that just cannot be discussed, cannot be criticized, cannot be, uh, are just not open for open for, for criticism or open for better explanations and better seeking better ideas. Well, that's just so it. They stop they looking. They have that in common with the right. You know, the, woke, the far right and the woke left yeah. meet in a static description of their ideologies. Yeah, of their I mean, like, the woke left uh, more so, and it just, I, I don't want to say more so because I think that, you know, the alt-right, the far right has more potential for violence but the woke left, unfortunately, because of their control over academia, granted, you know, uh, Trump's in power in the state, so, but I mean, that, that is something that's fluid, right? It can change back and forth, but the academy is going to take a long time to change. It's um, like, the, 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 you know, the only thing, they're not searching for, okay, is this idea valid? To me, it seems like, um, again, I like that the term Jamie Lindsay and Peter Bogosian came up with the grievance studies. Because they are searching for grievance everywhere. The only thing they seem to be looking for is grievance, and what is going to cause me grievance. I mean, the alt right has their grievance. They know what it is. You know, they, they they've clearly spelled it out. They're not looking for anything else. They're not looking for a solution other than we want a white ethno state, pretty much, right? Like after that, whatever they do internally, that's something you know we can figure that out. But yeah, no, it's it's the, the this this continuous talk. And again, getting back to the religion of the alt right or the woke left or whatever. That's why I mean, like I, I know, like I liked his article because he wasn't saying it was a religion, but he was saying it got religious. So, yeah. like all these things, I mean, I think we should just focus on: is it dogmatic thinking or not? Like you said, you know, is it dynamic yeah. or is it static? Right? Is, is static, like, dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, dogmatic. I, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, like dogmatic thinking in any any form will will, will take you to a wrong. Um, listen, I, we're I've taken a lot of your time. Is do you want to talk a bit about some of the movies you did, or yeah. I mean, if you know, if you just want to mention them, like we can discuss them. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Like, I, well, there's, yeah, I mean, of course, the one that Islam and the Future of Tolerance is is the Sam and Majid um, conversation. Uh, it's out now, obviously. It's on iTunes and Amazon, and it's all the VOD stuff. Um, yeah, and we're, and we're we're doing screenings, and if you want to host one, we do it. We do them through FanForce. Talking about academia, we have a, 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 a educational distributor as well called Torch. So looks like we're going to be doing one in um, University of Cincinnati. It's not confirmed quite yet, but I think Yasmin Muhammad and I are going to be there. It should be really fun. Might do the same exact thing in Columbia. So it's getting out there. It's starting conversations. If if you're nowhere to to find it in person, buy it online and watch it there, and let me know what you think. Yeah, and then the other films, the opposite field was the one about a baseball team in East Africa. Totally different kind of thing. It's like family-friendly underdog story of the first African team to play in the Little League World Series in America. It's actually a Canadian connection in it for your Canadian fans. Uh, a team from Vancouver gets involved at the end. It's a, sort of a surprise ending. That one I don't think is on iTunes anymore, but if you search opposite field, Uganda baseball, you'll find it somewhere. Um, or it was on Netflix for a while. I don't know about in Canada. And then this other one called All Rise, which is a really interesting film, um, really isn't available publicly anymore. It's on law school. It's at law schools everywhere. That one was actually funded by a law firm. It follows a, um, a moot court competition, which is basically a model UN type American Idol competition for international law students all over the world. It's really cool. It's called the Jessup, J-E-S-S-U-P. Um, it's a really cool thing. It's very philosophical and intellectual where there's a, a fictional 
case put out to every law school in the world, basically, at the same time, and then they form teams, and they argue for fictional country A or fictional country B, and it's a simulation of the International Court of Justice. Uh, that's really cool. The best teams in the world come to D.C. to compete. It's sort of a career-making uh, uh, thing, very stressful for these uh uh, international students from all over the world to be in. That's really interesting. That was really fun. That that film and the production of it took me to like 11 countries and had amazing conversations with very, very inspiring younger people who are engaged in these kind of conversations. You do see a lot of the same kind of confusions we're talking about. Uh, but the the realm of international law is, is really, really interesting for people who are listening to this. Um, just think about international law and you're inherently thinking about first principles and the notions of objective morality and how to navigate that field and if the, the obviously the big bugaboo in international law is is who enforces it and how is it enforced the international court of justice is this amazing kind of body at the hague it's basically the judicial arm of the un so only countries can be there you can't have individuals it's not the icc which is where like warlords get put up um, this is countries suing other countries for some violation that they consider to be a violation of international law, whether it broke a treaty directly between them or broke some treaty that both of them had signed at the UN, et cetera. Okay, you, de you decide, okay, you know, I'm thinking of some recent one, like Australia sues Japan because they claim Australia is, uh, or Japan is um, whaling in their waters or something, or like fishing in their waters internationally, and like this is illegal, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you're a judge, you decided, I think that one was decided in Australia's favor, but now what? Who enforces it, right? There's no police, there's no jail for the country. So it's this really interesting dynamic, almost philosophical thing of like, how do we, you know, what do you do once you're at that point? But listening to students who are really engaged in that conversation and about to enter that conversation, it's probably 99% politics and 1% law, really, international law. Uh, but it's really, I think, it's, it's sort of an interesting film and just an interesting concept to, to understand about the, the utility of going through a really generally philosophical exercise that might not have any tooth in the real world about who enforces it, but is it still worth it or is it not worth it? Or It really makes you think about these notions of like things like the UN or these kind of conversations, do they go anywhere? I think there's great value in it. Um, it to, the UN gets a lot of shit, and rightfully so, but we should also, it's interesting, and I didn't know a lot of this, the language, of, we're talking about language, the language of international law, even for bad actors in the world, someone like Putin, when he, when he does something, see, I don't even want to put a, a, a word on it, because words become legal things, when he does something in Crimea, what do you call that thing? An invasion, an annexation? A uh, he would call it like a, like a humanitarian effort. Like, what do you put around that? But I remember him, again, this is someone who you think doesn't give a fuck about international law and probably doesn't or uses it to his advantage. When the world is condemning that action as some sort of illegal land grab, we're using the language of international law. We're pointing towards treaties. He pointed towards a treaty. It's kind of crazy, but if you go back and read the, the language and the kind of conversation he was having publicly to the world, he basically was saying that there is a, if there's an emergency crisis, there, this is a notion, I don't, I don't know the exact treaty in international law, but the, if there's an emergency crisis in your neighboring country, and these people, basically, if, if Rwanda genocide is happening and you're Uganda, you can go in and put a stop to that and then ask questions later. Like, you don't need permission first. 
that his basic sort of premise of Crimea, he may have caused the crisis itself, but was basically saying there's Russian speakers there and they're in trouble and we're just going to go in and help them out. And then, of course, he never left. But even like him using the language of international law and trying to appeal to these treaties, even as a guy we consider a totally bad actor, um, I think is interesting. I'm not saying Crimea has been not bloody at all, but I, for, for what appears to be sort of an old-fashioned land grab, if you, if you did that 500 years ago, I would imagine it would have gone much worse in, in sort of the just toll of human uh, blood than it did post-UN and post-World War II, just because of even this veneer of doing this dance, even if someone's not genuine about it, doing the dance of pretending you give a shit about international law, I think is a better universe than one where we just say, fuck it, the UN's broken and this entire international law thing is just kumbaya bullshit and it's anti-Israel and we're fucked and just leave it. I think the world, we have to admit, this is a very pinker thing, you know, we're in the long piece post-World War II. We, we tend to forget that we haven't had a major military conflict between two superpowers in, what are we going on now, like 70 years. That's a pretty good run for the for modern times, and we live in the most in human history, et cetera. It's sloppy. It's a, it's a mess. But that film and getting involved at sort of that level actually did a lot of work for me to realize, as much as I want to scoff at how bad the system appears to be working, I'm glad there's at least a forum that tends to be there in some in some level. That's my like pitch for the UN as an idea. We can certainly do it better. Yeah, okay, well, <laughs> well, we could just on that uh, one quick thing. Yeah, you thing. have a lot of experience on that. I, I'm, I'm, I, okay, yeah, the, the UN, there's there's a lot of problems with it. I mean, okay, you talk about using the language and stuff like that. Saudi Arabia saying that they're going to do more to fight terrorism and then making atheism a terrorist defense, right? So, okay, fine, we'll put a bunch of atheists in prison, look at our prison record, we put in all these terrorists into prison. You know, like, there is right. there is some... But I agree with it. And it, again, goes back to the, the, you know, whatever, the woke left, the far right. They're not trying to fix anything. They're trying to tear down everything. It's like, okay, let's look at what systems have worked across the world and let's try to emulate them. And if they're, you know, I'm not saying that what we have is perfect or what, you know, what United States or Canada or the West has is perfect, but so far it's been the most tenable system. So let's work within it and try to fix it. Like not this, this idea of let's tear it to the ground and rebuild it. Okay. Sometimes you do need to tear stuff down and, and rebuild, right? Like there, there is, you don't have any other choice, but I don't think we've even tried to see, okay, let's address the problems within the institutions where they lie. Like a thing with the UN, um, you know, one of the one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia can be on the Human Rights Commission at one point, I think they were the chair of it, was because of the block yes. of Arab states, right? You ha so, let's. I mean, it's 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 going to be natural, like you know, we will go go together with the tribes that fit us best, and we'll make you know, alliances or whatever. But something like the UN should be something. I mean, it's it's got to be a higher higher aspirations than who can get the best trade deal. You know, yeah. Like, if if we. We abandon the UN and then have World War Three. I guarantee you, we'll reinvent the UN and just give it a new name. Like the, I, I think, I think we all understand. We know even the woke. Well, let's leave the woke left alone. Even the far right, the isolationist far right, the nationalist far right, who thinks this is all a terrible idea and the word globalism is a poison and all that. Like I think maybe this. I'm giving them too much credit. I think they do think they they're helping and fixing the world. That, trying to fix the system or or that was a huge mistake and we need to go back this way whatever you want to call it um, 
I have to believe that they know at some point a global cooperative society at some level or a forum to at least do that is necessary. If they think that's just fair fair trade and that every nation ought to be just sort of some autonomous system that's just engaged in some global libertarian dream or something like even that is a system that needs some regulation. They admit that some regulation has to happen even in, they're not anarchists so at some point they're, they're, there is regulation that has to happen. I think you can get even a hard libertarian to, to notice that at least a small level of, of regulation is necessary at certain times and moral at certain times well then extend that to their utopia of a global society that is engaged in some libertarian society if that's what they're going for well then you're going to need some regulation there and then and then we get into a whole conversation of what kind of regulation and who gets to decide and then you've just invented the UN again it's like that South Park episode where they get rid of government and by the end they rebuild government idea we should all just like elect the best person and then if we don't like them do another one and like that's great it's i mean the joke the joke works but i but i i I think that would i I hope we don't go down that path because it'll be painful of learning the lesson once again but we like we it's sloppy of course there's problems and there will always be problems and we that the fun part is solving them the fun part is like oh there's problems they're solvable let's get to work on that instead of this throw it away let's abandon it and go back this direction or the woke left of like we've solved the problems what are you talking about we just need to sort of stop talking about all those things it's, it, we know they're both wrong we just you know the dynamic system of, of what it could be is is the challenge but yeah i don't i don't know but yes I, you've taken up a lot of my time i well, am gonna have to go and yeah, no, i will i will uh let you go thanks again for coming on and thanks everyone for listening and uh i'll be back in a bit awesome thanks man uh,